Welcome back, listener, to the Modern History HSC Podcast, your personal guide to understanding the modern world around us. Welcome back, listener, to the Modern History HSC Podcast. Uh, This podcast that I'm doing at the moment was supposed to be done with my current class, just like what we did in the first episode of looking at Nazi consolidation of power um, from 1918 up until 1923. We did do a whole episode and they got some great revision done, but the audio file um, had some technical issues. I will just say that. So that's really disappointing. They really did a really good job. So um, if you are listening to this for revision, guys, um, sorry, but this I wanted to have as a resource because we did touch on a really important period of time so this is a recap and revision for that so the period of time that i'm going to do a bit of a revisor on is what happens after the beer hall putsch so we're in germany it's 1923 and this episode is going to span a decade so as you can see in the title the title is from terrorist to chancellor And that's really the uh, miraculous thing that we want to discuss and analyze. How do you go from being essentially a fringe terrorist organization like the Nazi party to having the largest uh, political party in the Weimar Republic and your leader being the chancellor, effectively the prime minister of one of the most powerful states in Europe? It's fascinating, uh, incredible, and we want to see what are those elements. Was it all down to Nazi propaganda? Um, I think you'll find that the ball started rolling uh, a lot before Hitler was Chancellor. So let's start with the Beer Hall Putsch. The Beer Hall Putsch is Hitler's attempt with the Nazi Party and individuals like Hermann Goering, Rudolf Hess, Heinrich Himmler, and their figurehead, their celebrity that they bring into the putsch, Ludendorff, to try to stage a national uprising in Munich, uh, in Bavaria, and hopefully, well, they're thinking hopefully that they can do a Mussolini, they can emulate Mussolini, take 30,000 black shirt thugs or individuals, march them on Rome and then seize power that way and then justify it later. They're hoping to replicate that with their SA forces, Um, have the figurehead like Ludendorff. He's the person who's well-known. Hitler's effectively a nobody outside of Bavaria at this point in time. And they're hoping that by convincing certain people within the Bavarian government to side with them. They can grab hold of the reins of power and then start a revolution that spreads all the way to Berlin in Prussia. And then that would be the biggest domino to fall. That is not the way that it goes. The Beer Hall Putsch um, starts off very, I think, very promising from all accounts that we can see. They take the beer hall in Munich. They get three very important political figures in Bavaria in one room who happened to be there, so it was coordinated. 
Uh, they had a machine gun set up in the room, holding everybody hostage. And through the charisma and the prestige of Ludendorff, as well as Adolf Hitler himself, they're able to convince these three individuals um, to join their uprising. And some military forces and police forces in Bavaria, they're looking like they're going to side with the SA forces that are going around and being led by uh, Rudolf Hess and um, Ernst Röhm and Heinrich Himmler, who's a flag bearer at this point in time. And everything seems to be going well until the Nazis, uh, the Nazis show their inexperience in the situation. Hitler leaves to go to speak to Ernst Rome about the progress that is happening. So he leaves the beer hall. He leaves Hermann Goering and Ludendorff in charge. And whilst Hermann Goering is caught up in the beer hall trying to, you know, settle down the situation, Ludendorff makes a fatal error in letting the three important individuals go. Uh, effectively on a handshake and a promise that you're not going to back out of the deal, um, we're going to let you go, and, yeah, you know, pinky swear, <laughs> pinky swear that you're not going to um, get the police and the army to turn on us, and Ludendorff, uh, he does the little pinky swear and lets everybody go. And that leads to the army and the military forces being rallied, understanding the situation, and then the uprising is crushed. From that point, the Nazis are effectively a terrorist organization. Hitler ends up in jail. Hermann Goering is injured during the altercation where they go to march into the center like a final stand. He's shot around the groin region, uh, becomes addicted to morphine, uh, whilst he's trying to treat the injury. Himmler goes back to living with his mum in his parents' house. He's still only quite young, under the age of 20 at this point in time. So he's hiding out there. Rudolf Hess flees the country. And uh, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, where am I going to come back to? I'm going to come back to Hitler being in jail. So Hitler's in jail. He's feeling very depressed about the entire situation. And this really could have been the end of the story, but it's not. He has this epiphany whilst he is in prison in 1923. That, how am I going to pull myself out of this slump? And this slump's quite serious that the accounts that we have is that he's even thinking about committing suicide. That, like, that was it. It's over. Like, what a mistake. But he's able to turn it around, and in large part, it's because of who he is sh uh, sharing a cell with. Um, Rudolf Hess is captured and put into the same cell in the same uh, Landsberg prison as Adolf Hitler. And then whilst they're in prison together, Hess plays an, an incredibly vital role in rehabilitating Hitler. And remember, Rudolf Hess, he's a sycophant. He is just almost in love with Hitler. He is the Messiah. He is the uh, the Fuhrer. And Hess is no dummy himself. Not just because he's obsessed doesn't mean that he's not intelligent. He's able to come in, use his skills, show his ideas of 
Laban's realm, there's a living space, and he gets Hitler to adopt them and and feeds his ego again to pull him out of his depression. And he helps co-author, even though you wouldn't know if you would actually read the book because he takes no credit, he helps Hitler write Mein Kampf, which is the manifesto for Hitler, which will help spread his... Uh, Highly racist, highly anti-Semitic, uh, eugenics-focused, um, make Germany great again Bible. Once that is made, the other thing that Hitler is able to utilize is the trial. He is um, going to use his charisma. He's going to use the opportunity in front of all of these reporters, some international because you know he's he's a terrorist, he's a wanted criminal, and that sort of those sort of headlines sell. He's able to turn the whole incident from a failure to a to like a to a masterstroke. You know, I did what I did because of the German people. Um, I would do it again. It kind of reminds me of Fidel Castro. His speech of history will absolve me. Um, speaking about the storming of the Moncada barracks, which was a complete disaster. Him to him himself was able to turn it around. And I guess kind of like Fidel Castro, Hitler does not spend the entirety of his five-year sentence. He's let out after perhaps maybe about a year or so. And the last decision that he makes is he's going to completely cut ties with the SA. So he resigns his position at the as the leader of the party temporarily so that he can distance himself from the thuggery that's going on with the SA because uh, they're still going around occupying different places, being caught up in street violence. And Hitler's going to have a crack at being a real politician. But what are the other real politicians doing in 1923? So if we fast forward a little bit to October 24th, 1929, so this will be uh, around about five years or so after Hitler is out of jail, he has a crack at being a politician and tries to rebuild the Nazi party, but I think they get around about maybe four seats or so, not very much. But then they get a miracle. The Nazi party gets the Wall Street crash of 1929 and the Great Depression. So now they go from looking like whack jobs and ex-terrorists and, you know, doomsdayers to looking like prophets. And this crisis hands them the opportunity for legitimacy. Also, at the other time, Uh, At this stage, the Weimar Republic is also seeing the dying breaths or the death throes of democracy in Germany. So in 1930, uh, the then Chancellor, so I might break this down a little bit as well if you're having it from an Australian point of view or from an American point of view, like what's a Chancellor, what's a President, like what is the President in charge, what's the go? So the president, think of it like your Senate members. It's supposed to be the person, the figurehead of the country at the top um, and has a long-term plan. And 
almost like a stand-in sort of monarch figure, but not a monarch figure, representing the elite. So Field Marshal von Hindenburg, he is the president at this time, very, very old school, very, very traditional. You might as well have the Kaiser himself as the president. And then you have a gentleman called Mueller as the chancellor. And Mueller's response to the Great Depression is to go down this path of quite deflationary uh, responses, raising taxes. We've got to try to pay the debt off, trying to go through um, austerity, which the Germans, they've already gone through a period of hyperinflation, are not jazzed about at all. And then he is removed, and this is the beginning of the presidential government. So Hindenburg steps in, removes the democratically elected chancellor and says something along the lines of, I get to pick now. I am the kingmaker. Mule is not going to work. So I'm going to put in a gentleman called Brewing. Uh, That's B-R-U-N-I-N-G. And his economic policies are not much better that he continues to go down this path of um, we've got to try to pay back the debt, things are getting tough, they're really not stimulating the economy, and then this leads to another shift in the political landscape that then Brewing is removed and then by 1932, so this is in two years, they then put in a gentleman called von Papen and then von Papen himself is then removed late 1932 and then they put in a more military uh, militarily connected gentleman called Schleicher Um, they're able to do this because Schleicher himself in the faction that he represents paints all they have to do is paint von Papen as a socialist and the Weimar Republic has already made it very clear that they are anti, well, the elite establishment, so uh, Hindenburg, uh, and the values that he's representing is very suspicious of the communist socialist agenda, and they have selected that they're going to lean more to the right more than anything else. So... As long as Schleicher can come along with some sort of evidence to say von Papen is a secret socialist, uh, he's a communist, he's going to um, cause a Bolshevik revolution in this country, he's able to play up those fears and ideas and then they get rid of von Papen. And then Schleicher is chancellor for two months. And this is where we come to the close because now we're in 1933. And this is where Hitler comes in, that the Nazi parties this entire time have been building. Um, They have found a gentleman called Joseph Goebbels, who's uh, an amazing public speaker, um, someone who's very skillful at propaganda, someone who is attracted to the Nazi message, has a, a, a burning hatred for the Jews who he feels have suppressed his work, um, a man with an inferiority complex. And they have gained through his expertise and through the use of the crisis 
uh, 50% of the Reichstag, uh, or very close to that. So there are two major parties within the Reichstag in 1933. You have Hitler, who is the leader of one of the largest parties, and then you have the Communist Party, and it's very split. But you also have Goering, who is found himself as the president um, or the leader of the Reichstag, kind of like the Speaker of the House. And it is through Goering and through von Papen that the two of them are able to convince Hindenburg that Schleicher needs to go and Hitler needs to be the Chancellor. Because up until this point, Hindenburg has been just as suspicious of um, of Hitler himself. Plus, he holds a little bit of resentment against it. You know, Hitler's a corporal from World War One, and it's just like, oh, am I going to be taking orders or be on a similar level as a corporal? He's like, no way. But Goering and von Papen are able to create an arrangement um, where... Hitler is going to be Chancellor. Uh, von Papen is going to be Vice-Chancellor. And von Papen assures Hindenburg that this is just simply a formality, that even though Hitler is Chancellor and I'm Vice, I will hold all the power, I will rein Hitler in and make sure that he doesn't, um, you know, all these things that he's talking about, it's not going to go that far. Um, <laughs> which kind of all falls apart in the next year to come from 1933 to 1934, which, fingers crossed, will be an episode that I'll get to record with the crew and not have any technical issues. So we're going to leave it there for today. I will also say that the Modern History HSC podcast is currently running a a competition for all high school students. We have a narrative competition. We're looking for the best factually based narrative on the Christmas truce of 1914. Uh, We would like scripts to be submitted to learninggoals uh, at gmail.com. All the information about the competition is on our Instagram page, which you can follow by searching Modern History HSC Podcast. And we have a couple of prizes for the best script that is proofread and submitted to us before December 5th. We'd be looking to professionally produce your script with voice actors if it ends up being in the first person with a couple of characters or a professionally done voiceover for the third person. And then we also have some of our custom merch, which we will send to you as well, and we'll get in contact with you. And the winner of that prize will be announced, hopefully before the date of that event, uh, on the 24th of December, where we will then release the show just in time for Christmas. So we're really excited about that to do our first community-based competition. Please get around it. If you're listening to this, you obviously love history and love storytelling, so we want to hear from you guys um, and get some feedback from you. So that's all from me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Modern History HSC Podcast.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Modern History HSC podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern History HSC podcast. And if you have the time, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This allows us to attract more high-profile guests into the future. And finally, remember that truth are not merely facts, because facts alone can be manipulated either intentionally or unintentionally. Truth will only reveal itself when an individual undertakes an honest, thorough, and courageous investigation. We must restrain our intent to prove contemporary points and concerns and instead accept that we could be the exact people that we are studying and critiquing. This is true empathy and it is uncomfortable, but is necessary in the pursuit of truth. Thank you and we'll see you next time.